This gun sure looks deadly, but it's not the least bit deadly unless I point it at someone and pull the trigger. Gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Repeal the 20th Century. Today I have with me Daniel McAdams. Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, thanks for having me on your program. I'm Daniel McAdams, the uh, director of the Ron Paul Institute. I've been the co-host of the Ron Paul Liberty Report with Dr. Paul since 2015 got a third of a million subscribers and uh, over 2,000 episodes of the program. Uh, before that, I worked for Dr. Paul on Capitol Hill from 2001, right after the Twin Towers, up until his retirement uh, at the end of 2012. Yeah, well, I appreciate you coming on uh, because I have very much appreciated your uh, commentary on the Russia-Ukraine war that has been happening, um, especially in the background of this conflict which I think most people don't realize uh, there's an extensive history um, I think most people's knowledge goes back to maybe 2014 um, and if we're really lucky maybe to 2013 um, when the coup happened and the new government was installed and then in 2014 with the Crimean uh, invasion but um, you know I've seen a lot of people uh, especially you go back further than that to um, about the fall of the Soviet Union um, so I wanted to kind of get your uh, take on the background of this situation and then what we're actually seeing today well you know you could go back to the fall of the Soviet Union or to the end of the Cold War which is better because I don't think the Soviet Union fell mm -hmm. I just think the Cold War ended and then the Soviet Union decided to uh, to disintegrate or to break apart and then reconstitute itself under different lines. But, you know, the, the issue of that is, you know, the, the, you have the Warsaw Pact versus NATO, certainly since 1949, lined up against each other, an ideological struggle of the century. Uh, and when the end of the Cold War came, the Warsaw Pact disintegrated, uh, and, but NATO didn't. NATO stayed uh, an alliance allied against who knows. It was designed to defend Europe against a Soviet invasion. And, of course, you know, uh, Senator Robert Taft, Mr. Conservative, argued vehemently against the United States joining NATO back in 1949. He viewed it as another entangling alliance, which we do not need. Uh, and looking back over his arguments, and you could read his unbelievably great speech at the time, arguing a very eloquent speech arguing against joining nato uh, he hit all the points back then he was absolutely right we don't need to commit the united states to defend some other country some far uh, far away 
uh, not necessarily in our, in our interest. So at the end of the Cold War, we should have seen these uh, sort of opposing sides break down. And a new, I mean, remember that we were talking about a peace dividend, peace dividend. We didn't have to have a Cold War military budget anymore. We could look at people actually keeping a little bit more of their money. <laughs> Wouldn't that be interesting? But no, the military industrial complex couldn't have that. They had to start thinking up new wars. And so you had kind of the, uh, the war on terror as a bridging uh, kind of situation uh, until we could get back into the real meat of things, which is China and Russia, uh, which we're now deeply back into. Uh, but in terms of Ukraine, uh, it did start, you know, you could talk about the, the uh, Orange Revolution uh, in 2004-05, where the U.S. overthrew the first democratically elected government uh, for the first time in democratically elected government in Ukraine because they viewed it was too friendly toward Russia, its neighbor. Imagine that. Uh, of course, our trading partners, our biggest trading partners are our neighbors here. It makes perfect sense. Uh, and then when the Ukrainians were able to elect a government, again, they elected the same guy that the U.S. overthrew, Yanukovych. And so the U.S. went back under the Obama administration and overthrew that government in February of 2014. And that was the really, I would say, the beginning of the war we are talking about now. It didn't begin in February 24th of this year when Russia went into Ukraine. It began in February 2014 when the U.S. and it's on tape doing so uh, organized uh, and executed the overthrow of the government in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people kind of uh, gloss over this fact that um, the current government in Ukraine is still relatively very new. I remember, even though I wasn't very politically active at the time, I remember hearing stories about it of um, you know, this new regime being installed and then Zelensky being elected its new leader. Um, and I was very, you know, uh, confused as to the rhetoric to it because it, it shortly uh, after it was the um, Crimean annexation by Russia. Um, so I, I wanted to get kind of your thoughts on um, getting into the nitty gritty onto what happened there, the, the timeline of the U.S. coup of the previous U government and then straight into the annexation of Crimea. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem with discussing these issues is, first of all, the, the U.S. mainstream media and even the alternative media doesn't cover it properly. Um, you know, it's, it's all based on empty emotionalism and propaganda. The first thing that happened after the Russian entrance into Ukraine this time was the banning of Russian channels of RT America and RT, and also the deplatforming of, of a lot of Twitter channels, et cetera, to try to look at a more broad perspective. So what the American propaganda machine wants Americans to do is to see uh, images of people that are displaced by war and say, oh my gosh, here are the white hats, here are the black hats. How dare these bastards do this? Let's put a flag of the preferred white hat country on our Facebook uh, profile and therefore we are now warriors on the cause of good versus evil. It's an it's a Marvel universe, uh, so it's difficult to have a grown up discussion about these things, and it's frustrating. And obviously, for many years, Dr. Paul, to a lesser degree myself, uh, have been called all manner of names because Dr. Paul didn't want to go into Iraq. He didn't want to uh, go into Libya and and Syria, etc. So. You get labeled these things, and of course now that the, the tone is even worse, you get labeled an apologist for Putin, who was much worse than Hitler, and probably even one and a half times worse than Satan himself. 
uh, if you happen to, to recognize things. But to your question, what happened after 2014, okay, let's, let's put ourselves in this scenario, okay? You live in Eastern Ukraine. You are ethnic Russian. You speak Russian only. 90% of the people around you in your entire area are ethnic Russian and they speak Russian. They've been historically a part of either the Soviet Union or Tsarist Russia before that. Your identity is Russian. You vote for a president that says, hey, we're going to increase trade with our neighbor, Russia. As we know, as, as libertarians, uh, trade you know, raises uh, the level for everyone, and it also helps promote peace. So these people vote for a person that says, hey, let's get along with our neighbor and let's do some trade. Uh, and let's have some development. You know, Donbass, the eastern part of Ukraine, is the industrial center of Ukraine, by the way. Let's not forget that. So then you have the U.S. come in. You have Victoria Nuland come in. You have Tony Blinken come in. You have Jake, uh, you have Jake Sullivan come in. You have John McCain come in. You have Lindsey Graham come in. And they say, hey, you gotta, we, you got to get rid of this guy. you got to overthrow this guy. Uh, and so there's an extraordinarily violent coup that's bankrolled by the U.S., Newland herself said, we spent $5 billion to overthrow this government. It's bankrolled by the U.S. They overthrow the person you voted for. So, you know, we spent four years in Russiagate uh, being told that the Russians influenced our elections. Of course, it was all BS. But this is actually a case where we overthrew the government. And so put yourself in the position of the people who they elected a certain person as president. The U.S. comes in and says, okay, this is, guy, this is no longer your president anymore. You have someone new that we have selected for you. The first thing he does is ban the use of Russian, ban the use of the language, which is your first and only language in a huge part of the country. You know, by the way, even Zelensky, the president, had to learn Ukrainian, and he speaks it. I've been told with a bad accent. So you've had your you've had your vote stolen from you, and so what is your what are your reaction? Well, Crimea, of course, is also ninety percent Russian, ethnic Russian. It's been in the hands of Russia since the 18th century with a brief uh, break under the Soviet Union. So they say, no, we don't accept this. You stole our vote, you stole our candidate, you stole our president, we're not going along with it, we're breaking away, screw you. That's exactly what happened. Crimea said, screw you, we don't want any part of this. They said, okay, we'll have a referendum. Hmm. And they voted on it, and 80, 90% said, no, we don't want to be part of this bogus country anymore. And they didn't have a referendum in, in eastern Ukraine, but they started a, an uprising, a, a push for independence, a push for autonomy. So it, in these circumstances, it's not unreasonable to conclude that people would act this way if they had actually had their vote stolen from them, which is what happened. Yeah, I, I think that's a very accurate characterization of what happened, though I have seen a counter-argument from some people presented that um, specifically with the um, Crimean secession from Ukraine and annexation by Russia, a lot of people, all counter-argument that they put forward is that Russia uh, aided this secession movement greatly and um, sent lots of resources to uh, Crimean rebels, um, just as they have done in Donbass, and that's kind of the prelude to what actually led to the invasion of Ukraine. Um, but I kind of wanted to get your take on that. Does that change things at all, um, Russia's influence on that, or is it kind of a, a, a non-point? <laughs> non well, two things. First of all, the, the secession of Crimea from Ukraine occurred without a shot being fired. Let's not forget that. 
and the idea that Russia came in and mm -hmm. occupied Crimea and influenced the vote is untrue because Russia was already there. Russia had leased uh, Sevastopol uh, era, uh, uh, a naval base forever. Russian troops were in Crimea legally and had been uh, ever since the end of the Soviet Union. So there was no invasion of Russia into mm -hmm. Crimea. They were already there. Uh, and so the uh, whether there was a subtle uh, influence of Russian troops in the voting, well, we can't know that. That's too difficult to know. But we do know there was not a shot fired. If the people were so opposed to it and felt so coerced, we've seen it over and over again, they would go out and protest in the street. You would hear something about it, but you didn't in that case. And of course, we would never provide tools for people to rebel against their governments. No, we never do that ever. Yeah, no, I, I think that is a, a good way to characterize that counter argument because uh, while I agree with the sentiment coming behind it of that, you know, there is gen legitimate concerns about Russia in the sense that Russia is not a favorable country. I mean, any libertarian could tell you domestically that, of course, no, they're not a good um, country. But... What do you mean by that? I don't understand that. So, the domestic policies of Russia are very much not... are antithesis to libertarian ideology, I would say. And but specifically, I would, specifically, what would you cite? Uh, I would cite, I think, the crackdown on protests, for example, laws prohibiting protests against the war uh, Russia is conducting. Seen, have you heard of January 6th? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I... As I as I would say, I would also criticize the American government, but I think um, that sometimes there is a, a knee-jerk reaction of, of libertarians to kind of... I don't want to say full-on support, because I, I definitely don't think that's what you're doing. Um, support the opposite side of the regime, or the opposite side than um, the global American empire. But, you know... But see, that's the brain-dead yes. argument. Oh, well, you just love Putin. Yes. When you point out objective facts. This mm -hmm. is what happened. This is why the country screwed up now. It's because we went there and we had no business being there. Oh, you just love Putin. That's the problem. There's no intelligent discourse. It's basically reduced to, like, some kids in the backyard playing stickball. Yes. You know, and that's why we can't get past this. Uh, you know, the laws in Russia are repressive. The laws in the United States are repressive. The laws everywhere are repressive. Let's go to Canada. Drive a truck into Ottawa. What happens? You get the crap beat out of you. Governments suck, right? It doesn't give us the it doesn't give us the right to go around screwing around in other countries. If we mm -hmm. want to deal with sucky governments, we got a hell of a lot to do here. We could be going, you know, from now till the end of the century, dealing with the crap we have here. So that's mm -hmm. the problem. That's why our philosophy should be: don't go abroad seeking monsters to slay. And that's exactly what the neocons and the liberal interventionists do all the time. And their best allies in this are the libertarians, because they say, well, I agree with you, everything about Gaddafi. Oh, my gosh, he's handing out Viagra left and right. But we shouldn't send troops. So they become propagandists for the CIA interventionist mm -hmm. talking points. They become a conveyor belt for pro-war propaganda. But then they still have this self-righteous, well, I didn't think that we should send troops. But gosh, we sure did. And I helped facilitate that. Yeah, I, cer I certainly do actually agree with you that there are a lot of libertarians who are um, quick to also, in the opposite, knee-jerk reaction to, they've heard all these horrible things about Russia for years, you know, um, 
especially when it came to the Red Scare and the panic over the Soviet Union, we heard all these things that Russians are terrible and um, and I think libertarians do the same thing where they fall into CIA propaganda as well. Um, that they, they start parroting the, the viewpoint of the, the regime, which I think is very um, not conducive. Um, but I kind of wanted to segue into specifically talking about uh, what led up to now what is going on with uh, the Donbass region and then Russia moving troops actually into Ukraine and wanted to get your perspective on that and the background on that. Well, as I say, this is not the start of a war. This is a mm -hmm. continuation, hopefully the end of a war. The war was started by U.S. interventionism uh, in 2014. Uh, am I thrilled that Russia went in and smashed everything to hell? No, it's terrible. War sucks. It's awful. That's why if the U.S. really wanted to end this war, Joe Biden could stop it tomorrow. He could simply call up Zelensky and say, stop holding out. You never were going to get in NATO in the first place. You know it. I know it. The, NATO, the other NATO members know it done stop you're going to be neutral neutral is good switzerland is rich so is austria there's nothing wrong with being neutral you can trade with your neighbors and you can trade with the west and we're not going to put a bunch of uh, offensive weapons on your soil on your territory we're not going to chalk you, chalk you full of missiles and bombs and bio labs and all this crap if we simply did a non-interventionist move when it came to ukraine we're no longer going to try to own you it could end tomorrow and people could start rebuilding their lives. But that's not what Biden and the neocons want. They want it to go on and on because this has nothing to do with Ukraine. It's the most cynical, disgusting war ever because the United States is not, is not supporting plucky democracy Ukraine against Russia. The United States is at war with Russia and they're using the Ukrainians as cannon fodder. It is the most cynical ploy. It's... it's <laughs> It's as bad as anything you'd see in Syria. I would say Yemen, but Yemen is even worse probably. But this is a proxy war that the U.S. is undertaking. They started it in 2014. They've been very blunt about it for years. It's very obvious uh, what they're doing. And you can go back to um, in 2014, uh, the article uh, written by, the, uh, by Gershman, the head of the NED, National Endowment for Democracy, who penned an article just before the coup in 2014 saying that Ukraine is the prize. If we can capture Ukraine from the West, for the West, we can destabilize and finally overthrow the Russian government. This is a U.S. government-funded regime change organization, and it's been echoed uh, over and over and over again. This is a war of the U.S. against Russia using the Ukrainians' blood uh, and the wealth uh, to fight, and it's just one of the most disgusting things in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that is a very accurate ca characterization because um, the kind of the metaphor I've kind of used for people who, um, you know, very much thought that that, you know, the history of the Russian Ukrainian conflict started uh, on February in February uh, is that kind of the U.S. kind of poked a, a sleeping bear where we kind of had that, you know, that fall of the Soviet Union moment where the Soviet Union kind of regressed back into a weaker state and we had an opportunity to kind of normalize relations and, and um, open up trade with them which again going back to a previous point about how we know trade raises up the standard of living for people and then also um, lessens the likelihood of conflict between that but instead 
the United States kept NATO, continued uh, these aggressive policies, foreign policy um, tools against Russia, and now we're kind of seeing that with Ukraine, where we're poking the bear and then leaving the helpless um, the the helpless lamb out to out to be out for the pasture. And um, but some people would say that that that's actually an argument. Oh well, we, now we need to double down. We need to double down and protect the Ukrainian uh, people and the Ukrainian government. And I kind of wanted to get what your response to that is. What what would you say to the, someone like that? Well, two things. First of all, the U.S. didn't sort of sit back and watch what Russia failed. We sent in a bunch of corrupt pseudo intellectuals to rob the place blind and prop up oligarchs who stole everything. Um, the oligarchs were defeated to a degree. When Putin came to power in 1999, they continued to thrive in Ukraine, and they can they thrive today. You know, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, is bankrolled by an, by a corrupt oligarch, who not only selected Zelensky. Uh, Zelensky starred in a, as your your listeners know, uh, started in a comedy series popular in Ukraine, Servant of the People. They basically just took that whole comedy series and superimposed it upon the government of Ukraine. Zelensky's own party is called Servant of the People, and he plays the role that he played when he was the actor playing the role of president. So the whole thing is rather farcical. Uh, but when you talk about the uh, the oligarchs, and the U.S. purposely did this, you know, we have uh, the cover was at the cover of Newsweek, Yanks to the Rescue, where the U.S. Uh, openly and proudly intervened in the elections in Russia to make sure that our guy, Boris Yeltsin, kept in power. So we had a role in this idea of getting Russia to its knees after the Cold War because there's, there's a kind of there's a kind of Cold War thinking that didn't shift and we maintain this sort of Cold War view of Russia even though the Soviet Union and Russia are two completely different entities uh, and if we could re if we could go back and do it in a smart way if you and I were in charge you would have said hey glad glad that old Soviet crap is over let's start trading let's get together let's see what we can do uh, and the world would have been very different um, but now I'm forgetting the second part of your question. Oh, so the the question really was kind of a lot of people, there is a significant amount of people who in response to, you know, bringing up the fact that we kind of set the stage for this invasion and, and really antagonized Russia into this situation, um, they would say it's time to double down. Double now. down. Yeah. <laughs> We have to support democracy in a country where the president just outlawed every opposition political party, except for the ones that are openly Nazi, right? Uh, and shut down all independent media or all non-government media. But that's, I mean, I don't care either way. It's not, I don't, doesn't it doesn't matter to the U.S., it doesn't matter to us. I couldn't care less what a president of Ukraine did because Ukraine, the interest of Ukraine is nothing, is not related in any way to the U.S. national interest. It doesn't matter. The borders of Ukraine and Russia don't matter. The borders of Ukraine have changed throughout history so many times, uh, probably only slightly less than the borders of Poland. So it's just not an issue, certainly not an issue worth going to World War III for. Does America want to face nuclear annihilation over whether Ukraine changes its borders or the borders of Ukraine change? You know, the, the entire Middle East, the history of the Middle East wars uh, are largely because the, the British Empire uh, artificially imposed borders on countries that didn't respect uh, people's ethnic and tribal backgrounds, where they wanted to live, what they wanted to be a part of. That was the author of so many of the Middle East wars and continues to be. 
same thing may well be true with Ukraine. Who cares if Donbass is separate and has a separate autonomous thing? Are we going to go to, we can't sleep tonight because Donbass is independent, right? Who cares? The borders change. Great. Maybe they more accurately reflect the will of the people, uh, and that's fine. If you want to double down, you're going to double down on people dying for no reason in Ukraine. That's what's being doubled down. All of these armchair warriors who are such tough guys when it comes to this, all the think tankers, uh, you know, <laughs> they're the worst of the worst. They're getting people killed for nothing, for no reason, for absolutely no gain whatsoever. Yeah, I, I think that's very much true and that, you know, people sometimes treat this uh, almost as if it's a, as, as simple as we send U.S. troops and that's the end of it. Um, I think I remember there was a congresswoman who uh, said she supported no-fly zones, but she that's said she didn't Florida. know what, what they actually were. Um, and I think it's a, it's extremely dangerous and, and scary things to be seeing coming out of the, the people who make this decision. But I, uh, I wanted to kind of switch over to um, something you mentioned earlier about the U.S. biolabs, because I think that's very much a thing that um, kind of encompasses this thing where, especially when it comes to a ongoing conflict, um, governments are really good about disseminating propaganda and making it very hard to know what's actually going on. And I think we've kind of seen with the U.S. biolab story, at least from the U.S. side and the U.S. propaganda machine, has been a uh, sort of uh, we've always been at war with East Asia kind mm -hmm. of moment. Yeah. Um, where at first it was denying U.S. biolabs exist, and then now I, I believe the New York Times wrote about them. I, I can't remember the exact details, yeah. but I, I'd like to get your um, uh, your perspective on that and kind of <laughs> where that's going. It went from, you, Alex Jones, or how dare you suggest there's biolabs in Ukraine, to, well, hell, of course there's biolabs in Ukraine, you idiot. You know, I mean, that's... That's how the propaganda works, you know. But what I find fascinating, and I would love to see come out, and we talked a little bit about it this week in the Ron Paul Liberty Report, is the role of the president's son in these. And then more and more of that's coming out. Of course, that laptop at first was considered Russian propaganda, which was a lie. Uh, it wasn't. And the New York Times itself even recently said, well, it's kind of accurate. Uh, it's kind of true. It really was his laptop. Uh, but now stuff is coming out about he was involved in getting funding for these biolabs and they're dealing with deadly pathogens in Ukraine. Through his job at Burisma, $83,000 a month uh, he was making there. And he basically, you know, he was cashing in on bringing the, being the vice president's son, getting all these deals when he wasn't smoking crack and doing the other stuff that he did that we won't talk about that if you are interested in laptops, you can find out that is not even worth talking about. Uh, in, in, in gentle public, but the corruption, I think, might be one of the sort of important spokes in the wheel of why Biden is so desperate to maintain the stand on Ukraine, because it certainly seems uh, that his son was deeply involved in this stuff, was making a lot of money banking on the family name, and if... Um, some of uh, his business uh, partners, and we saw on Tucker Carlson, remember, was it a year ago or so? Uh, Bubalinski. Oh, he's crazy. He's full of crap. He's lying. Well, 
Turns out that looks like a lot of that is true. And if the case is that the big man was getting 10% off the top, then you'd see why there's an incentive to blow this whole thing to hell, again, at the expense of a bunch of uh, cannon fodder Ukrainians. So it's pretty sick. I think the Hunter Biden, the corruption angle, I, if we had some decent journalists in this country, I mean, this thing would blow wide open. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I can remember back to the first time people were talking about the Hunter Biden story, and very much it was, uh, again, just like the bio labs, it was a, uh, um, we've always been at war with Eurasia kind of thing, where they denied that there was any Hunter Biden uh, laptop story to go to such an extent that actually, like on social media, it was, it was blacklisted, you get banned, you get suspended yeah. for talking about it. Um, I know m multiple people who were uh, suspended for talking about it on all social media platforms, and but now it's come out and the propaganda machine has admitted it is true when the, the evidence has become basically undeniable. And and now they'll say, well, that's old news. That broke over a year ago. Come on. <laughs> let's move on from that. <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to ask you if you thought that um, that story is having any implications in the response by the United States when it comes to this conflict. Do you think that s there are some people who think actually it is because of that story um, that Joe Biden hasn't already made um attempts at U.S. intervention, uh, or further intervention, I should say, in Ukraine. Um, I wanted no. to get your perspective on that. No, that's not the case. The reason why, and thank God there's a little couple of brain cells left in Biden's head, and ironically, thank God for the Pentagon, there are some smart people there. The reason why Biden is not going any further is that the Russians would bomb NATO bases in Europe. My good friend Colonel McGregor drove a tank into Baghdad in the first Gulf War. He's written a bunch of books on military strategy and history. He knows a little bit about this stuff, certainly a hell of a lot more than I do about it. I'll be the first to give him credit. But I listen to him. We've had him speak at our conferences. He's a good friend of mine. I listen to him when he talks. And he says that if Poland gets involved directly and if Russia feels threatened, they can easily uh, put a missile on every single NATO air base in Europe and put them out of commission in a second. And even Biden himself said, well, that, that, new, that new hypersonic missile, it's kind of like all the other missiles, except it's unstoppable, right? So the reason, and I guess you could say in a way deterrence works, uh, but the reason why they don't move it any further, and the people in the Pentagon know, the people in the State Department don't know because they're ideologues, but in the Pentagon they say, look, we are looking at the devastation of NATO's army in Europe if we do this. It's a dumb thing, uh, so let's don't do it. Yeah, I... I think that um, that is certainly true that deterrence is very much holding up in that and I'm glad you brought it up because I did want to briefly touch on it um, because it is my view that you know if we come out of this conflict with it ending and there is no US intervention I think um, you know mutually assured destruction principle is gonna be pretty airtight of an of a argument um, in favor of why nuclear war is I don't want to say an impossibility because uh, as long as nukes exist, it's always a possibility, but really something that we shouldn't um, be as worried about in the sense that like at the end of the day, we're not going to risk it um, rather than, you know, if we did intervene, oh, well, no one's going to use nukes if we intervened, that, that wouldn't happen. Um, but 
wanted to get your perspective on mutually assured destruction and do you think it's real it's holding up airtight or are we seeing a little bit of leakage in that um maybe it won't hold up well i think you know you said if we intervene we've already intervened and that's the problem yeah, we're yeah. still sending a lot of weapons over there and it's like uh, my good friend chuck spinning would say it's a self-looking ice cream cone because we send a, a few hundred million dollars worth of uh, you know shoulder fired launchers and the and the russians blow them up and we say okay raytheon we need some more raytheon says oh okay that sounds good you know if you take a look at the stock prices of lockheed and raytheon since this thing started they've gone through the roof so it's it's a bonanza for the military industrial complex and of course it's off the back of the rest of us in america either through the in, inflation tax uh lower standard of living lower quality of living uh, or direct taxation um so you we already are intervening the problem now, and this, here's the weird part, you know, I mean, I, I grew up a long time ago before you, and I remember as a kid when the Soviet Union and the, and the United States and the free world were faced off in a bitter, mortal, philosophical fight uh, for communism versus freedom, right? And that's when we faced the potential of mutually assured destruction, and it was a serious ideological conflict, uh, and now... You think about what is the conflict? What is the basis of the conflict? And it just, you, you can't put your finger on it because it doesn't exist. So in a sense, the fact that Russia is nuclear armed uh, gives pause to people who know about these sorts of things in a way that Libya not being nuclear, nuclear armed didn't. Oh yeah, let's bomb them. They, they don't have anything. Syria, let's train some Al Qaeda and send them in there. That, that should be fun. So the fact that they have those weapons does cause um, pause among those that know about these things. But what I find disturbing and, and unnerving, uh, uh, more so than during the Cold War, is that there are these sort of um, vague red lines that you don't know when they're crossed. Okay, we sent some uh, stingers. We sent some javelins over there. What if we send a tank? What if we send a MiG? Is that one step over? We don't know what their red lines are. We don't talk to them. Um, uh, Blinken has not talked to Lavrov since this started, or not talking to them, so we don't know. So in their mind, they might say, yeah, we'll pick off some of these trucks as they cross the border with this stuff. But if they do this, that's it. You know, that, you know they're toast. Uh, and we don't know that. So in a way, it's the worst of all worlds. I run, it's worse than during the Cold War when we actually had a serious ideological disagreement. Uh, so that's why it's so ridiculous and farcical, because it absolutely makes no sense. Mm -hmm. I, I'm glad you also just brought up um, the lack of communication between uh, Russia and the United States government um, since this has started because um, flashing back to uh, I believe December is when the troop buildup began on um, the border between Ukraine and Russia and um, I remember seeing a headline about Vladimir Putin proposing his um, terms for removing the troops from the Ukrainian border. Um, now, for me and you and libertarians, it was very much a deal of, of course we would take this. Uh, but I think for people in the Pentagon and Joe Biden, it was a very non-starter kind of thing. And I think it was Putin coming in, swinging in high and trying to lower the terms. Because uh, if I remember correctly, it was something about removing all NATO bases in Eastern Europe and... Um, recognizing the independence of the Donbass region and then I think there was a third term too that I, I can't personally remember now but um, then Biden just flat out said no 
no attempts at negotiation, no attempts at any of this. And um, I wanted to ask you why you think that is, that we went straight from... Um, we went straight to no negotiation, no communication, because even during the Soviet Union, we had a communication line set up with the Soviet Union, specifically after the Cuban Missile Crisis, a direct line to the Kremlin. But now we're foregoing that completely. Why do you think that is? And even Reagan, you know, even Nixon and Reagan, you know, they talked to the Soviets uh, when they were, you know, when they said, you know, we'll crush you. So the... Um, you know, the terms that they came up with, they weren't necessarily terms. They were the, it was an invitation to begin a broader discussion on a new European security architecture that wasn't based on NATO versus Russia. Uh, you know, to, to take a fresh look at things, to talk about some of the arms control treaties that Trump had gotten us out of uh, and that had sort of withered. So it was an invitation to begin a discussion, and basically the U.S. just, basically the Biden administration just laughed them off. Uh, and that was a dumb thing to do, you know. Certainly, in retrospect, it was a dumb thing to do because there was—it's always a win-win to talk. Uh, and if there's a way of, well, here's the thing: you now, if there's a way of dialing back the tensions, well, that's a problem for the military-industrial complex because they love this stuff. We've got, you know, ninety thousand troops now on the border with Russia. All those guys need to eat. They need to have all kinds of goodies uh, that are provided by the military contractors, and there are lots of them. Uh, the Beltway is getting rich over this, so they probably didn't like it. They hire a lot of lobbyists. I know some of their lobbyists. They spend a lot of money lobbying. So, and so it's that. It's money, and it's power, and it's just raw arrogance. We rule the world, uh, and we tell you what to do. Uh, and now that's all coming to an end. It's all coming to a crash. It's been made obvious now by uh, the Russian intervention in Ukraine uh, that, to a degree, NATO's a paper tiger. There's not much it could could do, can do, or will do. So I think we're going to see uh, a changed world uh, after this is done. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned a bit of a, a win-win scenario when it came to um, that that offer in, back in December. Um, I kind of wanted to ask what you thought that win-win situation would kind of look like um, if we, that that was the route that we ended up going. Well, I mean, for all of his faults, and we could go on for another three hours talking about him, but President Trump got a lot of things right. Why the hell are we still protecting Europe? Right? They're rich. Let them do it themselves. He was absolutely right about it. He didn't follow through with a lot of his good ideas, but he was absolutely right about that. Uh, you know, and so what would be wrong with, with ending our, you know, what, 70-year occupation of Germany? Uh, you know, having troops over there. The Germans don't spend anything on defense. Uh, and the reason they don't is because they never felt threatened before. Uh, if you felt threatened uh, in your neighborhood, you might invest in a gun, you might invest in some martial arts training, you might move. Uh, so people vote with their wallets. The Germans voted with their wallets. We don't feel threatened by Russia. So they didn't spend anything on defense. So why are we there? Why are we, why, why do we have troops there? Why do we have bases there? So so, you know, this is the uh, this would have been the beginning of a new era where we didn't have to expend so much uh, in the region. And a lot of people and a lot of Trump voters uh, and a lot of Americans wanted to see that happen. But then there were some special interests that did not want to see that happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that is a good way to characterize kind of what happened there. And uh, it is interesting you brought up Trump because, you know, again for all his faults which we could go on for hours about um, mm -hmm. on foreign policy in fact 
uh, it was those exact faults that brought me to libertarianism from being a Trump supporter. But um, he definitely, you know, he began to start that questioning thing of why are we in Europe? Um, at least on a, a, a broader scale, uh, Dr. Paul definitely gets some credit there, a lot of credit in um, promoting skepticism of the global American empire. But he definitely, why are we in Europe? Why are we protecting nations that um, not only say they don't feel threatened, but are rich enough to protect themselves? Um and yet we continue that, and now it's kind of boiled over into um, a restarting of situations we've seen many times before, um, which is what I, I wanted to kind of bring it back uh, to other times that I think this has happened with specifically NATO involvement um, in Eastern Europe. Uh, if we look at the Kosovo conflict, if we you um any of those conflicts in in Eastern Europe in the 90s to the mid to um, mid 2000s, um, so I wanted to get your perspective and see if you think that basically we're just seeing another one of of those um, in the current Ukraine conflict. Well, the you know the U.S. did to Yugoslavia in 1999 uh, what Russia has not even approached doing to Ukraine. You know the first thing. The U.S. did when it started bombing Yugoslavia, and when it started bombing Iraq, was taking out the infrastructure. Um, the United States uh, killed more people on the first day of bombing than the Russians. Uh, or dropped more, sorry, dropped more missiles on the first day of bombing than the Russians did on the first 24 days. And it's not a whataboutism to point out that the fact that the U.S., when it went into places that were completely unjustified, let's not forget, Iraq was completely unjustified. Yugoslavia was completely unjustified. Uh, it went in big and it killed a lot of people. Uh, the shock and awe three weeks in Iraq killed 7,000 civilians, uh, according to the Cost of War Project. Um, and uh, you're not seeing numbers like that uh, in any way, shape, or form coming out of Ukraine. And that's not to excuse what's happening because it's a tragedy. But it's pretty ironic for the U.S. to say, how dare you, you barbarians, you scumbags. You scoundrels, when you got a trail of blood behind U.S. foreign policy, you know, decades, decades long. So, yeah, if we if we hadn't done this stuff, if we had been living like Switzerland and, you know, uh, in, you know, as, as a neutral country and hadn't uh, felt the need to have this messianic view of Americanism that we have to spread, uh, you know, at the barrel of a gun to the rest of the world, uh, then we might have a little bit of a leg to stand on. Uh, but we don't. Um, and that's why, you know, we non-interventionists uh, non uh, refuse to take sides. Our side is to take the American side, which is to stay out. It's none of our business. Stop propping up any side. Uh, maybe be a facilitator for peaceful negotiations. That's about as far as I'd be willing to go. Um, but that's a stretch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the last kind of topic I wanted to touch on before. Uh, related to the Russia-Ukraine conflict is one that kind of hits more domestically, uh, but also I think spills over into other issues, and I think that has to do with the sanctioning of Russia, not just by our federal government, but what we've seen by corporations shutting them out completely, blocking them out um, 
through the internet or, or full-on just moving their businesses out like in um, McDonald's is doing now where it's shutting down its establishments in Russia. And um, I wanted to ask you what you think the long-term consequences for the United States is um, from this sanctioning and from what we see now as a basically a, a digital and um, economic shutout of the of Russians out of the global economy. Yeah, from from culture to business to education and beyond, it's in his, it's an hysteria that I would say we haven't seen in a long time. But we saw it in two years of COVID, right? It's this kind of hysteria, uh, and it does remind you. I mean, I, I, now I'm forgetting the details, but you you sparked my memory. I think it was a, a cellist, but he's basically he was a Russian cellist who was forced to denounce to denounce Putin before he would be allowed to play at some concert in the U.S. I mean, this collective guilt, I mean, we haven't done, we've, well, we've done some of that. We did it with Muslims after 9-11. But it does remind you of Japanese internment camps, you know, this idea that because you happen to have Russian blood in you, uh, you must do something or we will do something bad to you. Uh, and that's on one aspect, and that's something that hopefully uh, America collectively, and I'm not a collectivist, will feel some shame over because it's sick. But the other thing is, it's this weird self-fulfilling prophecy, and we're seeing it now with gas in Europe. You know, the Germans said, oh, we're going to seize your assets, Russia. We're going to sanction you. And Russia said, oh, yeah, well, do you want to buy some natural gas? We're not going to take dollars anymore because you seized our dollars. We need to have some rubles. Uh, and then the Germans said, hey, that's not fair. Our contract said dollars or euros. And they said, well... You should have thought about that when you seized our assets. So we're seeing a rapid de-dollarization. The, the Russians, <clears throat> and of course it will hurt them to lose that market, but the Russians shrug their shoulders and say, hey, it, it, they literally today said, we're not a charity. If you don't want to buy this stuff on the terms that we want, we got plenty of customers to the east, uh, and we're happy to do business that way. So we've already seen a deal for, I think, a billion barrels of oil with, uh, with India and Russia that are going to be paid for in rupees so we're basically digging our own grave maybe ultimately will be a good thing but the dollar is losing my ducks are outside the window quacking <laughs> the dollar is losing its status as the reserve currency uh, and we're like pushing it down the cliff we've like greased the wheels and pushing it down the cliff so um, you know uh, stupid or evil maybe it's a combination of both but we're, we're in for some tough times now mm-hmm yeah, I think that's certainly true, and I think um, there are a lot of domestic effects that this kind of policy is having um, that either is being wrongfully blamed on it um, or we're not looking at the full picture here and, and really um, analyzing it. But um, I wanted to kind of wrap up, so I wanted to give you this time to promote anything that you have um, to my listeners that you think they should check out, so... Okay, well, thanks very much. Um, I just hope that you'll watch the Ron Paul Liberty, excuse me, Ron Paul Liberty Report. We're every day at noon live on YouTube. Uh, we're also available on Rumble and Odyssey, uh, so you can watch it there if you prefer a more free speech platform. Uh, the RonPaulLibertyReport.org uh, is where we publish written articles, and we keep it to a minimum. We don't publish a bunch of stuff. We try to just pick out two or three things that would benefit you if you read it every day and we try to keep the articles short so we hope you'll go there and just get kind of a morning briefing 
Uh, and uh, we have, we do, Ron Paul Institute does conferences. We're planning uh, three conferences this year, which is a first for us. Uh, we'll do one in Houston in the spring, and then we do our annual Washington conference uh, toward the late summer. And then we're planning at this point, uh, don't hold me to it, who knows, but we're planning on doing a Lake Jackson conference down here in Texas uh, when it comes to mid to late autumn. So very, very active and busy schedule this year. We're thankful to be back at it. And I think we've met at a conference before, haven't we, if I'm not mistaken? Yes, we have. We, we met have, at we the have. Mises Caucus event in Fairfax. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So you know how important it is to, mm -hmm. for people to get together that are of like minds. You make connections, friendships, business uh, connections. So anyway, we love seeing people come out to our events. Uh, and we appreciate any viewers uh, that would come and subscribe and watch the show. Yep, and I'll make sure to link all that in the description so you guys can do that. Um, if you're not already watching the Ron Paul Liberty Report, well, you need to be. And, uh, of course, go to the Ron Paul Institute's website and uh, also look into those events. Um, libertarian events are a great thing to go to for networking and also just meeting great people like you, Mr. McAdams. So I thank you so much for, having, uh, for coming on, and uh, you have a wonderful night now. Thanks so much. It was great talking to you. Take care.